0: John, how's it going, man? Good. How are you doing, Steve? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, you, you have an MSP Eric. and I have you on here today because I want to talk about some forensics stuff because that, that's always fascinated me. But before I just dive in and start asking you some questions about all that, um, I want to talk about kind of, you know, who are you, where did you come from? Where are you now? So you weren't always an MSP Bef- before, th- before you started your MSP, uh, you did something else. So what was that? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so now I'm with TCG network services,
1: uh, in Natick, Massachusetts, but prior to that, I was, uh, a, uh, air force intelligence officer. Uh, and then transitioned to the FBI, uh, where I had a 17 year career, uh, as a, initially an intelligence analyst. Um, so they're not special agents. They're, um, the, the support people in the background who, who do the analysis behind investigations, looking for links between investigations, uh, and digging deeper into cases. Um, and then I became a supervisory intel analyst and, um then a chief security officer, and then an administrative officer for the FBI. But, um, my time with digital forensics worked was, was substantially with my role as an intelligence analyst and a supervisory intelligence analyst, uh, working all manner of crimes, counterintelligence, criminal, um, cyber, and of course, terrorism.
0: And, and I misspoke. You didn't start an MSP, uh, or at least I don't think you did. You are the director of cybersecurity at TCG Network Services.
1: That's right. Yes, yeah. So TCG has been in place well before me. They have been <laughs> uh, in existence for about 30 years. Um, they were initially a break-fix company um, and then transitioned uh, over a decade ago uh, to a managed services provider. Uh, they brought me on to enhance the um, cybersecurity offering that we have and to work on um, cybersecurity for um, you know,
0: all of our customers. Now, do they have any uh, affiliation with TCG the the telecom consulting group? Uh, no, no relation. Hey, for, if you don't know who they are, they are one of those like master agent type companies. So, um, if you guys want to get like the recurring commission on everything from VoIP to internet and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> um, to know. yeah. All right. So. Forensic analysis, that sounds boring. It really does. It sounds boring. Right. Um, so what does that actually look like? What is, what is a day of a forensic analysis and analyst look like?
1: <laughs> uh, I would say it's 99% boring. Um, so the, the, you know, the, the, um, the day in the life, it really depends. I mean, I, honestly. Um, there, um, there are thousands of incredible people in this field. Um, so I wouldn't want to speak for all of them. I'll just give my own perspective on it. But, um, to give you an example, uh, going through a computer, looking at the forensics for that, every computer has thousands of events that happen on that computer every day. Um, you know, for me to, to log into this, uh, podcast, I had to go in, you know, open a web browser, um, and, you know, it, activate some. Uh, links and all of those have digital forensic footprints that happen on the computer. So, um, there's, you know, forensics happening all the time with everything that you're doing on the computer. Um, it can be as simple as opening a word document, um, or it could be a program running in the background that the user doesn't have any knowledge about.
0: Okay. And that sounds still boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when when you take that information, um, you know it, it's it's one thing for an MSP to just have all this software to you know spy on our clients and whatever we need to do to provide support, right? They call that but auditing. Yeah, yeah, auditing. <laughs> yeah, like we audit all of our clients, right? Right. Right. Um, but when it when it comes to Uh, you know, there's, I feel like there's two layers here, right? So there's cybersecurity, which is what you do right now. And, you know, you, you have logs and you audit things and, um, it's really important to go through that, but when it, when it shifts into forensics, that's because typically it's, there's something legal involved, right?
1: Yes. So typically that would be where, um, there's some type of maybe insider threat activity or some other type of uh, activity that occurred and in, in my experience um it was uh you know during the boston marathon bombing uh which is the the biggest forensics case that i worked on uh literally looking for um what a day in the life of the marathon bombers was and piecing together through that digital forensics uh a day in the life of them um their pattern of life and, uh, what, what we could connect to them digitally with their actions when it related to the, Ma- the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, and all the events surrounding it. So, um, it's, it, it starts, uh, honestly, um, you know, when I started looking at Taharsar Sarnayos' computer, uh, I looked at, I, pu- we pulled about a, a million events from his laptop through Splunk and. Um, I began its simplest possible way with an access database. So we pulled Splunk events into an access database and I literally called through a million events over the course of a couple of months because of the the nature and the level of that case and the attention it was going to bring. Um, we needed to make sure we did everything as as detailed as we could, making sure that we didn't miss a single item. And so that was extremely boring. It took a long time. Um, I was, you know, looking at access database, uh, items and artifacts in there for, for probably a month, but, um, making sure that I didn't miss anything was absolutely crucial, uh, when it came to that investigation. So, so every time something happened on that computer, um, it could have been a system, you know, process running on the computer. Um, I would look at, you know, those events. Um, but typically what I was looking for is activity that Jahar was, was working on, uh, when it came to, um, his establishing a pattern of life for him, as well as then figuring out, excuse me, what, uh, what he was doing to prep for, um, the marathon bombing. And a big, a big component of the marathon bombing trial was his radicalization. So we really needed to look at what process Jahar was doing to either receive radicalization training from somebody else or, um, to self-radicalize. And so that became a big part of, um, the, the work that we did. It also became a big part of the trial at the, at the end of it, as we started to look at, you know, whether or not he was forced by his brother to do some of this activity or whether, um, he, uh, initiated some of this activity himself.
0: Now. Oh from what i remember the so the the boston marathon bombing uh took place back in 2013 i'm i'm looking at that cuz i couldn't remember how long ago it was i can't believe it's it's been almost 9 years yeah like, i was thinking like oh it was just a few years ago but you know it was just a few years ago like 1980 was only 20 Oh, wait, no, it's 40 years ago now, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> As a result, you see much more gray in my beard. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, it was two brothers and what they did was, was they, they made like homemade pressure cooker bombs and, and they detonated these things, um, near the finish line of the race. That's how the thing that confuses me is I I'll be the first to admit, I, I don't like watching the news because it's, I think more frustrating for me than anything else. It's, it's like when you watch a, a movie where it's like one of those, uh, I don't know first half of the final season of Ozark. Okay. I, was, I promise it's going to make sense in a second, like for, for the majority of the season and I, I'm going to not ruin anything. I promise guys. Okay. No spoilers, but I just kept thinking, why are you doing that the entire time? <laughs> like, so, um, Gosh, it was going to make sense. So, so that's that's kind of how I feel with the news. <laughs> sure. So, if if that's how I feel with the news, that means I don't really know all this stuff that that takes place uh, and all the details. You know, I I know when the president does something silly or when Kanye and who, what's her name, the Kardashian one gets divorced or whatever, right? But mm-hmm. I don't know the details of like important things happening in my area, in, in the country, around the world, uh, like I should, because I, I just want to
2: scream at the news. So with that said, why did they do it? That is a really, um, deep, uh, complicated question. I,
1: I really don't know exactly what, you know, their their thought process was as far as what they, you know, why they chose a target. Um I should just say that, you know, they were not cooperative at all. Um okay. Jahar, um uh, Jahar, you know, did have some uh interviews um in custody. Um but uh um you know those are and, and uh a lot of those are public record. Uh, now that you could view through, um, through the lens of the trial. Um, but I mean, it, clearly, uh, clearly they were motivated to, um, you know, bring some, some type of justice to America, um, because we had been, you know, a, a great, uh, you know, oppressor and we had been, um, in their eyes, you know, we had been, um, you know reaching out across the world you know conducting terrorism of our own um and uh and they wanted to um you know strike back at us and uh i you know from the forensics it's possible that um jahar shows the marathon um because he had been there a year prior um so it's possible that he picked the target but i do we don't know that for sure um And, and again, a lot of digital forensics is circumstantial in and of itself. Um, it needs to, you know, you you need to have other things to back that up, but digital forensics can help with, uh, putting together the picture. So there's a lot of things that are still unclear as far as that. I mean, the motivation was, you know, terrorism, they were, they were radicalized, um, they were Islamic radicals. They were, um, intent on causing harm and destruction. Um, but you know, their exact motivations, I don't know. And their exact reason
0: for picking the target. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So digital forensics is probably even a little different going from, you know, the FBI into what I think we can call the private sector, right? So how is it how is it different um and i guess what i'm asking is like does the fbi have cooler tools than we get access to and like you know that kind of stuff sure well uh i can tell you when we
1: when we first started this uh, you know and and as i had said i had done it had worked on a couple of different forensic investigations um the tools get better over time the um the initial uh, digital forensics I did back in 2004, uh, was essentially clicking through, uh, almost like HTML links, um, to different forensic artifacts. And that might be like a word document or a, um, a link file for a a shortcut for like a windows process. Um, so, um, that was incredibly painstaking work that was incredibly slow and moved at almost human speed. Whereas at the, at by the time the marathon came along, um, we still had a lot of work to do. There was a lot of painstaking work that still needed to be done, but the, um, the software, uh, was, was much better. And, uh, we used a commercial off the shelf, um, software called Forensic Toolkit. Um, so we used that, uh, to conduct, um, the, um, the forensics for the, the bombing, um, so the the technology has gotten better um as a result of the the overwhelming amount of digital media that was submitted to the fbi through our websites or through email uh we were able to um the the fbi was able to build a um a beta tested program where it can actually do really good um facial recognition and has great capabilities so um the the technology has definitely gotten better. it was, it was, like I said, human level to start I'm working now to machine speed, um, for computer forensics and a lot of it now can be automated. Um, so, you know, the forensic work, um, is, you know, a lot of that is automated when you're talking about imaging, um, hard drives and, and processes, you're essentially running them through an automated process, but then the actual analysis is still somewhat manual. Um, the, the tools can create, uh, snapshots for you and figure out, you know, maybe, maybe sort things for you in a better way now than they used to be able to do. Um, there's still a level of human analysis that needs to be done because the humans are the ones that have
2: to convince other humans that this activity is significant. Sorry, I didn't want to start talking while I was muted. I, I do that every show, every episode,
0: and today I'm determined <laughs> I'm determined. All right. So it, it sounds like, I, I mean, obviously, you know, nine years ago when, when you were doing the investigation, I would like to think that the tools have improved since then, even right. So yes. Are you doing any forensic type stuff today as an MSP? Um, uh, MSPs have the capability to do it. Um,
1: we have not dr- we have not kind of dove into the forensic expe- aspect of, um, you know, computer forensics to support the types of, uh, you know, lawsuits or, um, uh, instances where computer forensics would be needed. Um, to do what I did with the marathon bombing. So, um, typically the level of forensics we're doing is looking at, um, <clears throat> computer files, how those files, uh, are, um, either a threat or not a threat, trying to analyze, you know, how the file got onto a computer, um, looking at log files to figure out, okay, what is, uh, you know, w- how did this file appear? Uh, looking at audit logs to figure out, okay, what other processes may have, um, you know, Gotten that file from point A to point B, um, so that's that's more of what we're doing from the cybersecurity end uh, for an MSP day to day. I'm sure there are MSPs or other. I know there are other companies out there that do digital forensics when it comes to um, supporting investigations um, for civil and criminal, you know, uh, cases in court. Um, that's not something that we jump into ourselves right now. Um, so a lot of the experience I. Uh, I gained from the marathon bombing forensics. Um, I try to adopt to what we do at the MSP, which is more about um, computer security and looking at the the digital forensics uh, using the tools that we have available It's a it's a there's a uh, to me it, it, you know we've talked about it here and it could be something that we do down the road, but there's a whole, that's a it's a major commitment to take on for a company um, to to go into that realm um, because you know there's a there's a series of processes you need to put in place you need to buy forensic imaging um, software you need to to have forensic setups where um, you can make sure that um, the uh, the initial evidence you know that whether that be a thumb drive hard drive whatever the case may be is preserved so. You know the FBI is very good when it comes to preservation of evidence um, <clears throat> making working copies of evidence um, but there's they have a very strict chain of custody and so um, for a private business to do that there's there's a a, a good amount of overhead that has to be um, you know put in place first and it might not be worth it uh, for for some companies to do that um, it might be just easier or better to to send that to another company that does that as their, um, as their main mission. So, you know, for us, for, for MSP, what we're focusing on is more the cybersecurity end and, um, the, the it support end, and as something like that were to occur, um, you know, that's something we might move into down the road. But I think at this point, what we were looking at is more of trying to maintain just to stay in our lane as best as possible. And then to work with, um, teams that have all of that already in place. Because again, you know, for the, for the marathon bombing, um, we had to, our, we had a, um, uh, cart team, um, and they're, they're the ones who do all the, the initial computer processing. So, um, they're the experts who, you know, handle all of the, the evidence, um, they process it and then they create working copies for analysts like myself to be able to work on. So, um. If you don't have that in place, uh, it can be quite expensive to institute something like that, um, in a way that would stand up in a courtroom, uh, for either civil or, um, criminal, uh, litigation.
0: So who is the right type of person or what is the right type of company, um, that I'm trying to think of how to, how to word this. So one, what is the right type of person to decide? Maybe I want to do this, you know, forensic thing and work with lawyers and, you know, uh, law enforcement, whoever, and uh, make, make this like my job. Um, and is it something that a single person can do? So, I just, I guess I want to, I guess I want to ask like, obviously the FBI has, I'm not going to call it limited resources, but it's got, you know, what, tens of thousands of employees, agents, hundreds of thousands? There's a lot, right? Yeah, it's about, I think
1: last it was, last I checked, it was about 37 or 38,000 employees, of which about
0: 13,000 or 14,000 were special agents. Right. So, obviously the FBI's got, A little more resource of the uh, resources than like you or I, so that said, um, is there like a, you, you know, must be this tall to ride the roller coaster kind of thing. Like, can a, can a single person do this and be able to maintain chain of custody and provide results that hold up in court? I'm not asking about the financial outlay of all the infrastructure. I'm just asking if one, one guy, one dude can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, I mean, it depends on, it depends on the scale
1: of the, the litigation or the, or the, you know, the, the trial that they'd be, uh, planning for, um, when it came to something like the marathon bombing, we had a team of people, you know, and we, I either wrote or supervised, um, you know, writing, you know, 80 to 90 reports uh, related to um, computers or other uh, devices or other removable media that were affiliated with the Marathon bombing investigation. So um, it really depends on the scale. But yes, to answer your question, there are a lot of digital forensics majors that are out there in um, universities. So people can focus on that. Um, We have uh, a lot of good people that I know who um, were affiliated with the Marathon Bombing that actually do some of the teaching of uh, digital forensics work and and teach those classes at universities as well. Um, And then there's SANS classes that you could take for digital forensics to get your certification in that. Um, Typically, the FBI would have their people go through that SANS training as well. Uh, So yes, there's absolutely a path where one person could, if this is their passion, you know, they could start, um, downloading free forensic tools and then, and then moving toward, uh, you know, a system of education, whether that be, uh, college or whether it just be, you know, certificates and on the job experience. Um, so there's absolutely a path for that and you don't have to go through law enforcement. Um, there are really, really incredible, um, civilian forensic companies out there, um, that, that have, uh, good capabilities, um, And are looking for, you know, the up and coming generation of people.
0: Now let's talk about companies. So I know you said your company is at this time, maybe not ready or willing or or whatever it is, and that's fine to, to provide this type of service. Can like, I'll, I'll say your, your typical MSP. Can this be something that they offer?
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, we could offer it here. It's, it's just, again, it's, a it, the investment on the, um, the personnel, the equipment, uh, and the training and the resources. So, um, it, it depends. I'm sure there are some MSPs that offer this and, um, it really, anybody can do it with the right, um, the right, you know, people um, processes, uh, equipment and training. So, I mean, the big thing are, uh, you know, hiring the right people, um, finding people who, uh, might have some experience already, and then hiring them, training them to, to follow the processes that you put in place. Um, and then, you know, working with the equipment to make sure that everything that they do from ingestion of that, that media, uh, through preparation of trial exhibits, um, through the trial, uh, testimony itself, um, is as flawless as possible.
2: All right. Um, let's, let's talk about kind of, uh, I don't know, like
0: maybe the like life cycle of a single forensic, uh, piece of evidence or uh, case. However, we want to look at this, uh, I'm. I'm kind of looking to you to kind of guide how that works, but let's say we've got a small single person MSP in a not a not a major city, like a like a suburb kind of town, right? Um and they work with local law enforcement on simple stuff. Um I and I'm, I'm trying to think like what would a simple forensic thing be? Maybe you know, looking at somebody's cell phone after, uh, somebody got murdered or, or something like that, but, but not like a big let's, let's set a bomb off kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So I think, uh, you
1: know, in, in the simplest terms, I'd say like the, the, you know, most common scenario could be uh theft of somebody's proprietary information. So, uh, there you go. for example, we, we'd have, um, yeah, you know, let's say, let's say a person from, um our company decided to, you know, come out, leave with some type of proprietary information, um, designs, um, system plans, uh, network diagrams, you know, anything like that. And let's say they want to bring it to a competitor. Well, um, you know, in that case, law enforcement may or may not be interested in that, but there could be civil ramifications for that, uh, person as well as that company. So when you talk about, you know, a murder and the digital forensics that go along with that. Clearly there's very, very high stakes there. Um, and that should be in the realm of law enforcement to be the lead on that. Um, but when you talk about something like that, where we're talking about um, a person leaving a company uh, and, and stealing data um, or selling data, you know, while they're still employed with that company, that's something that could be done by, um, you know, a, an MSP or, uh, other friends, a company out there. And so that process would probably look like, you know, again, just as, this is a hypothetical, let's just say that this person, uh, in the old school way, you know, just took a thumb drive, plugged it into the computer, um, copied over the, the materials, um, and then removed that thumb drive, brought it to their second computer at home or brought it to, um you know, a new company computer and plug that thumb drive in, there's a lot of different artifacts that that process would leave. Um, it would, it would leave some, some footprints and fingerprints. So, um, you know, from the, from the digital forensics perspective, uh, MSPs, a lot of them probably have the ability to look at, and we do have the ability to look at, um, thumb drive insertions into computers, you know, we have the ability to look at, um when a, uh, what files are being moved to those computers. And, um, so we'd have the ability to audit that. And so that's something that you would do in the, in the forensics investigation. You would say, okay, we need to look at, you know, when these files were essentially created on the thumb drive and try to, try to get a timestamp of that, um, to figure out, okay, when did this activity occur? And then you want to marry that up with the activity on, you know, the, the losing company's computer, um, to make sure that that is a, it, you know, as, as close to a, um, a lock case you can. And then, you know, again, there might be, um, what, when someone leaves the company, the, the victim company has no ability, uh, unless it's with law enforcement, um, to be able to recover those documents, uh, on their own, you know, because there's, um, you, you know, one company can't just walk into another company and look at look at a computer. So um, there would have to be potentially some law enforcement, you know, interaction with that um, <clears throat> in a situation with someone someone grabbing a thumb drive and, and um, taking it away. Um, but again, that might be enough information for a company to, to say, okay, you know, to go to law enforcement and say, okay, we think we have a case here, you know, and then a local local state law enforcement would then probably use a legal process to um try to you know maybe a search warrant or something like that to be able to recover uh that that artifact um which which could be a document again like a network plan or something like that some, um network diagram or something like that so um, once it leaves the company's hands um there's the company is somewhat limited um they can determine you know, the nature of the breach, um, they could determine the nature of the theft. Uh, but again, they're limited with what they can do once the, once it leaves their property. Um, the same can be done though, if it's a digital, uh, if it's not just a thumb drive, if it's, uh, an upload to, you know, Dropbox or something like that, you know, then there might be, there may be more fingerprints that someone could look at there because, you know, well, what, what IPs, Let's say someone used a Dropbox account or, you know, some other type of file storage account, not to pick on Dropbox, but, um, you know, well, okay, well, then they might be able to, to pull some data. If, if the person did it within the realm of this company, the victim company's holdings, they could say, okay, well, which IP address did that document get uploaded to? And then which IP address did that document get downloaded to? Um, so if someone were to do something like that, uh, probably not the, the um cleanest way for someone to steal stuff. But, you know, we, I dealt with a lot of criminals and sometimes criminals can be somewhat um, lazy or, you know, can be, if they're not um, trained on how to do it, can, can leave footprints like that. So um, that's one way that, you know, for, for a small case like that, a company might be
2: able to provide some support to forensics in a hypothetical case. All right, so you just kind of blew my mind because now what what's fun is, um,
0: and also a curse is I'll 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 hear something and, uh, for example, you were talking about the flash drive, putting it in the computer, grabbing some data, and and then it gets me thinking like, I wonder how many MSPs are supporting medical facilities on. Uh, companies that have uh hipaa requirements right and don't have anything set up to audit if a flash drive is inserted uh, what data is moved to a flash drive or at the very least something set up to just like disable external hard
2: drives or, or something like that you know like mm-hmm. it just makes me wonder how many msps Don't think about things like that. Well, that's, it's one
1: of the things that we do think about here. And again, part of that is, you know, transitioning from, from the bureau and the work that I did, um, looking at, you know, counterintelligence cases of, um, economic espionage and things like that. It's one of the things that we, um, that I talked about with our team here, we had some tools in place and we put in a lot uh, of other tools in place. Um, and so. The the capabilities we have now are are much better than you know what um, maybe a typical MSP has in place. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of MSPs who deal with compliance issues, um, <clears throat> you know, file um, integrity monitoring and such type of compliance issues are going to need something like that to be able to show an audit trail when documents might be moving from one company to another. So um, you know, there's processes like Microsoft in Office 365 has. Um, some level of file integrity monitoring that you can you can put in place um then there's other programs you can buy we uh, we have partnered with a company called ThreatLocker. um they're mm-hmm. a zero trust company but they have the ability to do um device uh control and to to limit devices from um, connecting hard drives or um, external hard drives or thumb drives or any usb device um and um they also have the ability to provide audits of what's going on on a computer. Again, down to that really, really, as you would say, boring, uh, minuscule level, <laughs> but um, literally down to, you know, someone trying to add a um, an application in a browser, like, like a plugin. Um, so w- there's a lot of tools out there. Um, there's what we what we try to do is look at tools that give us more bang for the buck so maybe it does two or three different things at the same time um because a lot of them you can use for you know for forensic or auditing type work and then um again you know we look at that one for a zero trust um tool as well so um <clears throat> so that if something got through a uh antivirus or um edr um endpoint detection and response, then you know, threat locker could be like a last line of defense um, against the hacker at the endpoint. So, um, you know, there's, there's stuff out there. um, There's stuff that could be put in place. And, you know, I I don't know, I think we, um, I'm I'm trying to put in place everything I can here, based on my experience with what we've done, you know, over uh, what I had done in the FBI. Um, But yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to speak for everybody. I don't know how every MSP is running and whether this is
2: something that they do consider is, is critical. With, with somebody that wants to do digital forensics, I know like here
0: in Ohio, I believe you have to have a private investigator license to be able to do that. Is that common in, in most states? Um,
1: I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, it, it you yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't you, looked into You had it a special well.
0: badge where you didn't need to worry yeah. about that. So. Yeah,
1: I had <laughs> credentials so I could just, you know, and again, you know, our, our mission, our, our objective was clear. Like we were, we're there to try to, um, to, you, you know, find some justice for the families and the people who were completely destroyed. Um, you know, in, in some cases mentally, but in a lot of cases physically by, the bombers so um you know we had a pretty clear mission pretty clear uh idea of what we needed to do um but um you know that was given to us by two homicide bombers um most people are not going to have that clear um you know clear clear objective and especially on the civil side you know there might be a lot of gray area in some of the different um situations uh, if you're interested i can tell you about the uh you know, how that forensics, you know, did work for the marathon when it comes to moving articles from one device to the other. Um,
0: that, that was going to kind of be where, where I was going to take this. So before we do that, um, there's one question that somebody wanted me to ask you. Sure. Um, he wants to know if there's a forensic software that you recommend, and I know that's probably, you might almost be a little out of touch with it since it may have been a few years since you've used it but Mm -hmm. um is there one that you know of that's like really awesome that we can get our hands on um i again i you know my
1: experience was with um the forensics toolkit um and uh i wouldn't want to just you know give give um opinions on other things that I hadn't worked with. So, um, that, that still exists. I know it's still a tool that people use, um, and it, it has grown with, uh, technology. So, um, they've tried to, they've tried to add different, uh, elements to, uh, an investigator's toolkit within the forensic toolkit. So, you know, that's, that's really the only one I would, um, you know, would have someone look at because I don't know the environment right now. I'm sure there's other good tools out there as well. Um, and uh, and I don't have, you know, the background for a specific tool to say whether or not I would use it or not. You know, a lot of, a lot of my um, recommendations are based on actual use myself.
0: So <clears throat> my cat is not the timer, just so you know. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the chain of custody. I know that that's something that at least on the, uh, uh, criminal side, uh, judicial side, whatever, whatever. Um, that's something that's pretty critical for anything to hold up in court. So you, you mentioned earlier that, um, you have to like make a copy or an image of a drive Mm -hmm. so that way you can do all the forensic work on the image instead of on the original which makes sense right so is i mean can i just get like uh you know an apple time machine backup and call it a day like what or like you have to use a special imaging thing yeah so i
1: and that's where you know that's where process comes in place too because the the tools are one thing but the process is really what's critical with that because you know, you might you might be able to use almost any tool out there to make a copy, but the something that would stand up in trial is, you know, okay, you need to do a um like an MD5 hash. Or for those who don't know, it's like almost like a social security number of a file. Uh it might be a SHA one or a SHA 256 hash. Um again, those those are unique identifiers to um the these individual identification of a file in its certain state Um, so if i had a pdf file and i added something to it and then saved it it would have a different hash um or could have a different hash so um what you would need to do is when when that image comes into your um, custody so for example in the situation of somebody who obtained a hard drive from a search warrant there's a each of those files would be on that on that original piece of evidence would be um, cataloged, and then what the the team, what their process should do is to look at well the the working copy, make sure that the um, there's a mirror image of the all the cataloged files on one uh, copy um, that marries up with that original piece of evidence, and and that's one of those critical processes that would need to be put in place in order to make sure that. Um, a piece of evidence like that, or, you know, a device, uh, or a copy of a device would hold up in, in court.
0: That makes sense. I mean, I'm sure that the judge wants to know that you didn't tamper with things. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, the defense would typically, um, you know, in, in a criminal trial, the defense is going to try to discredit their witness. They're going to discredit the evidence. They're going to discredit the narrative, you know, so the. Uh, one of the best ways they can do that is to try to discredit the process by which something was came into the hands of law enforcement or, um, you know, a, a, uh, a, a litigant of some type. So um, that's going to be one of the first ways that they would want to try to um, create a, a reasonable doubt is to say, well, how do we know that this document or that uh, this document came from this device and this device wasn't tampered with? So... Um, processes are absolutely critical to put in place, um, in addition to the technology.
0: I think that's safe to say for every company processes are critical, uh, to, to the success, to the, um, health of the business, to the potential growth of the business. I mean, just think if, uh, if you had no processes in place. You you have, you have nothing that guarantees you're going to do it the same way every time. So I'm sure that, you know, that's a thing when it comes to forensic work. You you have to have uh, a proven method of, I'm I'm going to you know make my images. I'm going to get the MD5 hash, and then I'm going to go to town and start looking at logs and seeing what I can see. now what are some other i I don't i don't want the book man but like what are some other like really important processes that maybe are i don't know misunderstood or or people just don't know because they're not doing forensic stuff like i just it's fascinating to me like i know what an md5 hash is and i've i've used them in the past for you know, downloading large contents of, of data or whatever. Right. But I've, I've never, I've never really put thought into how forensics works. And after you said it, it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I mean, another part with the process is uh, the, the training of the analysts. So, um, to give you an example, when we were. You know, when we were first going through, uh, we, I think that the totality was about 70 terabytes of data that we went through for the marathon bombing investigation. And, um, you know, we had FBI Boston had support from FBI headquarters, the counterterrorism division, as well as a bunch of different units to include CGIS at, uh, at the FBI. Um, however, uh, you know, Boston analysts were the ones and, and TDY or temporary duty analysts to Boston. From other field offices or headquarters were the ones who were doing most of the work um but we would get calls and say hey have you given thought sometimes people would send in pictures of the tv um, and would say hey have you given thought to this or that you know and um we would get those from the public but we would also get those from investigators at other field offices or headquarters sometimes and um one common theme was um people who didn't know the forensic side of things and that there, there existed a path on the computer to the location of that file would, would be sending leads to us, uh, leads is just basically like a, you know, a way of saying, um, it's a, a ticket almost, um, to say, Hey, you know, look at this, because we think that, you know, a, a big thing at the time was we, we know the marathon bombers have hit. We didn't know who they were, um, or we didn't know their entire realm of people. You know, so once we first once we captured um, Jahar, Tamerlin was deceased at this point. All we had really to go on was really either uh, you know a, a non cooperative or somebody who's was duplicitous with respect to the information Jahar would give us, or the computer forensics. So we had to look at the actual computers that he was using, his phones. We had to look at computers Tamerlin were using. And to look at to to find out in the immediate term, in the week to two weeks after, are, were they targeting other stuff? Were they working with people outside of their initial circle of the two of them to conduct follow-on attacks in Boston or elsewhere? And so, from a computer forensics perspective, it's really critical for us to be able to look at those computers and analyze. Um, so that so this is where the forensic tool is is one thing, but the training is so critical because. The forensic tool in certain cases pointed us to um you know well-known locations um so here's a here's kind of a, a funny one that we got was we got we got leads from someone saying um hey we think the marathon bombers were targeting fenway park and so we're like okay well like clearly we need to jump on that you know fenway park is one of the most especially for red sox fans one of the most adored um, stadiums in you know the country so um but but other people you know find it incredible too when they come to visit so clearly it's a, a significant um target like the marathon would be like the boston marathon so uh we needed to take that seriously um but but doing the investigation on it uh looking for the path and again that's a that's a critical component of forensics is the file path um it turned out that uh jahar everyday visited um a certain weather website and everyday on that website um that website took a a live picture of Fenway Park in any type of weather so we were able to determine based on the file path and and you know some of the boring stuff what um that that was actually not a target that that was literally just his web browsing every day his browsing activity to a certain weather site and so so we were able to you know say that we were able to to limit the um the resources necessary to investigate that bad lead, um, by, you know, conducting the, the forensics, looking at the actual, um, device and saying, okay, we, we understand what you're saying and clearly that would be a significant threat, but in this case, based on our analysis and the training that we have and our experience, that is not something that he was targeting. It was literally, uh, him visiting this, this website.
0: That's really interesting. Now. I didn't realize that the, the brother was deceased. Um, are you, I mean, it was, was it, you know, police shooting kind of thing or what, what happened there?
1: Yeah. So he, um, so Tamlin and Jahar, um, when, uh, uh, to, to take you back a bit, uh, Thursday, the 18th, um, in 2013, uh, we released images um, that we had of Tamerlan and Jahar, not knowing their names at that time. So again, you know, forensically looking back, um, we were able to determine that Jahar saw the images on TV, reached out to Tamerlan via phone and said, we we didn't have the, the actual verbiage. So I'm paraphrasing here, but basically we need to get out of Dodge. Um, so Jahar was on his way up from UMass Dartmouth to pick up Tamerlan and we believe based on um witness uh, accounts and stuff that they may have been headed to New York City. Um so they they actually had in their possession still a pressure cooker bomb as well as multiple pipe bombs and um so because they essentially were, you know, flushed in that situation, um they were they were now on the run. And they felt like it, it was only a certain amount of time before they were going to be identified. So, um, so Jahar and Tamerlan, you know, took off and were headed, headed essentially to another target, um, because of that.
2: That's insane.
1: Yeah. Now, if, so, if you, So just, to, sorry, so to just answer a little more of your question with respect to what happened with them, um, they ended up hijacking this this really nice person who ended up, um, he's probably the only person in Massachusetts to pull over on the side of the road when they were sending a text message, um, but, um, he was, he pulled over on the side of the road to send a text message and, um, and was carjacked by, uh, the two Marathon bombers. So they got in his SUV and, um, kept him in there as a, as a prisoner and, um, and started the drive, uh, which to what we think was New York. Um, he subsequently was able to escape when they were refilling for gas. Um, and, um, again, forensically, we have the video showing all that by pulling, um, you know, gas station, video camera footage, um, ATM footage. We, we were able to forensically reconstruct the entire path that they took that, that night, um, that we, we called the night of terror where they, um, they killed officer Sean Collier at MSP, uh, at, uh, MIT to be able to, um, steal his gun. Um, and then they, uh, you know, they, they, um, uh, carjacked this victim. Um, so that night, um, they ended up getting into a shootout where they were throwing the pipe bombs at police in Watertown, Massachusetts, um, and then shooting at, uh, shooting at police, um, with whatever weapons they had. Um, and, uh, you know, the police returned fire. So it was a big shootout in a residential neighborhood. Um, Jahar ended up, um, trying to run over police and ended up running over Tamerlan, um, during that shootout as well, but Tamerlan had been shot and also was run over by his brother. And, wow. I, I believe he, he was fighting in the ambulance all the way to the hospital and uh, I think died at the hospital or maybe in the
0: ambulance on the way to the hospital. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I know these were, were two people that did something terrible, but. It, it does make you hopefully sit and wonder what on earth was Jahar thinking running over his brother? Well, he was trying to help to, to hit the police.
1: So there, his brother and the police were fighting. So he probably was trying to run. Oh. His brother. Uh, but as they were fighting, the police saw him coming and, um, and they got out of the way, but Tamerlan was on the ground. So, so Jahar hit him.
0: Thank think I'm going, well, I mean, at that point, right. And obviously they caught him anyway. Yes. Yeah. Eventually. So if you look at the, the Wikipedia page, the, the only true source for news, <laughs> <laughs> it's my, my go-to for everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, it looks like, and, and here's, here's what's crazy to me is like the name looks like Dezokar and you're saying Jahar. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I don't. So from the forensics, again, you know, looking at,
1: looking at videos of the family and how they talk on video, um, you can get an idea for how they pronounce names and, you know, how, how Jahar preferred to be called. I mean, that comes not only from the digital forensics, but the, other parts of the investigation, like interviews of people. So we would interview professors, we'd interview classmates, and they would tell us how he preferred to Paul you know, hmm. um, but you could just hear that straight up from the digital forensics too. And you listen to that to family videos when they're talking about him. Um, so, you know, yes, it looks like, you know, D Z H O K H A R something like that, but, um, but it's, but it's actually Jahar is how he pronounced it.
0: That is, I. I, I love learning how, you know, words are pronounced, uh, where, where they're just foreign words to me and, and trying to figure out what, what's the, what is the etymology of, or the, the That's history the of the, yeah. yeah, I, I, that, that kind of stuff is, is fun for me. So it looks like Jahar is, is still going through court. Um, Yes. Yeah. He's still in the appeal process. And I don't think we hear about, like, I remember hearing about the Boston bombing, um, everyone heard about that, you know, but is this kind of stuff like still in the news? Uh, in Boston for sure. I know,
1: uh, some of the Jahar trial stuff, you know, people will still bring it up. Um, and the, it might get a few seconds or a couple minute news blurb when there's a certain level to his appeals, I mean, he, he's, he's on death row right now um he's actually at supermax but he's awaiting um the death penalty and so um that appeal now i believe uh just recently went to the supreme court so um it you know has had to make its way up the appellate um process um and i believe is now at the supreme court
0: now i i don't know how much you pay attention to Joe Rogan, I feel like I have to watch what I'm saying, right? Now. Um, poor guy.
2: So oh, I'll get in trouble for that. In ten but, um, all right.
0: So once, once all the, like once, once the appeal is done with the Supreme court, regardless, the income, uh, income, income, um, <laughs> regardless of the outcome. Let's say that they uphold the the ruling and he stays on, on death row. Mm-hmm. Once he's done at the Supreme court, there's no more, there's no more appeals, right?
1: Um, I'm not sure. I mean, he had a, a really, really phenomenal legal team, um, paid for by us taxpayers. Uh, so I, um, I am not sure if, the Supreme court is the last step or whether there would be a follow on appeal to them. I don't know that process. So, um, it, talking about, it, I, I just wouldn't be able to give you the, the expert, uh, on that the expertise
0: on that. Well, well, and I guess I might even be asking, um, a more general question of I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about like what his legal team does or, or anything that you're not allowed to tell me once, once somebody. You know gets the the final answer from the supreme court are are they done like the, that's like the highest court they can get to so they they're done with appeals after that right um uh, i would think so but again it,
1: it you know the the legal team could decide to appeal some other aspect of the case or something like that as well uh-huh. so yeah you know, i i'm just never sure you know and, and again no, and, that, be aware. and that
0: makes sense so yeah. So it could be the first time somebody is doing an appeal because, uh, this, the judge was not, uh, an unbiased judge or, or whatever. Right. Um, he had, the judge had a bias and then, then they go through the whole thing and whether they win or lose, it might not change the total outcome. It may just change something and then they want to start appealing other things too.
1: Yeah. So the, I think what they first appealed on was venue and that, you know, he didn't get a fair trial or
0: something. Cause he was, like in, that Boston because he or was in
1: Boston and the, the venue was here. So that was, um, my understanding of what they initially were appealing. So, uh, well, let's say that his, you know, his, once his appeals are over, whenever that process finishes, then he would probably get a date, um, you know, of, of when they were going to put him to the, If, if the death penalty is upheld, um, regardless, he's spending his days right now at Supermax in, um, Florence, Colorado versus death row. Um, so he's, he's not in the typical death row, which is in the Midwest, but he's at, um, Supermax in
0: Florence, Colorado. Supermax is probably not a fun thing. Um, we're, we're just about out of time here. I, I just have one one last thing I want to, I want to try and get out of you. Uh, I don't know how many questions it'll take. So one, one thing that personally, I always wonder is why are people like on death row for like 20, 30, 50, however many years. Right. So is, is it because appeals keep happening or is it because they just here, we'll, we'll do it in uh, 2063, that's when we'll do it.
1: Yeah, I, I believe most of it is related to appeals. Um, okay. I, you know, at least in this case, I know that that's what we're waiting on now is appeals. So there's, there's, you know, obviously legal p- process in place. Um, I, I don't know the circumstances around each individual. Case. no yeah. and again it i'm really not worried about that appellate process i would assume is is what is the delay
0: for some of these people got it and and i'm i'm not going to ask you about individual people i know that there there are probably unique circumstances almost to every single one of them um but and i'm not going to tell you which side of the fence i'm on it doesn't matter i just know that i hear people say things like um I'm sick of taxpayer dollars wasting, you know, because of this guy wanting to be on death row for 30 years or whatever, like they should have just shot him in the backyard of the courthouse and been done with it or, or whatever. Right. But it, it sounds like it's, it's not that we're just like letting them hang out, it's, there's a legal process that's still happening.
1: Right. Okay. Yes. And in, in the case of Jahar, um, you know, I visited him there and he, uh, he has at least a couple hours a day of sunlight that he sees, but he, his cell is about a seven by 12 cell
0: concrete. You visited him. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I was able to, um, provide, uh, so I did a ton of the, the radicalization work on his, uh, on his case, um, in conjunction with our team. And so, Um, I went out to, um, to provide a briefing to the, uh, uh, team out there, like the, the, um, psychologists and their psychological team that would be working with him, um, about his radicalization and, um, and what he had done to self-radicalize, to prep himself for the bombing. So, um, so when I was out there, I got to see him behind bars. Um, and it was, it was pretty cool, I actually got to see a lot of, um, people on his cell block. So. Um, it was, it was different people from, um, organized crime, uh, you know, kingpins to, uh, leaders of white supremacist movements to Robert Hansen um, to Zacharias Moussaoui. So, um, it was a, a pretty cool, uh, visit, but Jahar was there. And, and it's funny because they had said like, well, he's, he, he's definitely radicalized in the prison now. Um, so he, he c- continued on that path that he started with the, the marathon bombing, but, um, you know, some of the guards didn't even know what he was in there for. It's kind of like, I don't know. The kid's real quiet. He doesn't do anything. So, um, it's, it's really interesting, you know, this, this lion that was outside, you know, killing people, what he turned into, uh,
2: in the prison system. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Prison. Prison changes people man and i
0: thankfully don't know firsthand but it is um it is a tough thing for people to go through especially you know supermax or just like solitary confinement i bet i bet those are especially difficult to do but
1: yeah in his case i mean obviously for anybody the biggest thing would be losing your freedom but mm-hmm. Um, in his case, you know, he has professional development programming. He has about fifty cable channels. Um, again, he has uh, all of his needs taken care of as far as uh, you know, haircuts and all that stuff. So he's treated very well there. Um, it, you know, Supermax has a has a bad reputation sometimes with ser- certain groups, but they um, they have a t- again processes and procedures. They have a ton of processes and procedures in place to guarantee a. Um, uh, you know, an, an inmate's, um, safety as well as the safety of the guards. And, um, so, you know, he,
0: he's in good hands there. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the ignorant American, right? You know, the only thing I know about supermax and, and other prison, whatever is what I see on TV and movies. Right. So, you know, every, everybody's got a shiv and, uh, you know, beat, beat somebody up or become somebody's bitch. That's what you got to do on the first day I and mean, you, what, whatever else you learn, right? <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, I have no idea what it's really like to, to be in prison and, uh, <laughs> hopefully I never will. <laughs> <laughs> right, we knew it.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, in that case, uh, Supermax is reserved for the people who are either the most notorious or um would either be a threat to themselves, threat to themselves or, others,
0: or others are a threat uh, to them
1: substantially. You know, like there's yeah. a lot of people in the prison system that might be a threat to themselves or others, but these are people who could motivate other people to create, you know, threats to other people. So that's why there would be some like white supremacist leaders in there or um, you know, organized crime leaders. And they're they're essentially isolated from other inmates, uh, but for
2: maybe an hour or two a day. Yeah, and I'm also, I'll I'll be honest where I'm like torn about how some of that stuff
0: works just because like some people are just really bad people. Like, what do you do with them? Um, and you know, there's laws for a reason. And if they broke a law, I mean, there's, we have policies and procedures within the entire legal system. So. I mean, it's, I I think, I guess all that to say, this is, um, the whole thing, not just, not just for Jahar, I mean, for anybody, the, the guy spending 12 years in jail for weed or whatever. Right. You know, the, the whole thing is, uh, a tangled mess and it's, it's not something that you can say it's black or white. Like prison's bad or prison's good or he deserved it or he didn't you know it's like i I think i think it's one of those everything's a gray area when it comes to all of that um but we have gotten way off track so uh instead of continuing to have this depressing conversation about prison i say we wrap up john uh thank you so much i i wish i could have um You know, I, I wish I could almost like see what, what does like for the, the forensics show you, you know, like if, if you could, if you could show me like, well, here's what we were able to, you, you said you were able to like, look and see this is what their journey was like the entire night, thanks to ATM cameras and all this other stuff. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I would love to, to see what some of that stuff looks like, but I believe that's above my clearance. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, so that's the benefit of, uh, it being, um, a generally public, you know, trial, the way the FBI handled this was it was a criminal, uh, it was a terrorism case, but it was all unclassified. So, um, I, I, what I had sent you was in the, um, one of the links to the actual exhibits, um, so you can actually see the exhibits, uh, Online, they're still available through the U.S. Attorney's Office and the um, trial records. So you could actually see in some cases there, they are, um, you know, Twitter posts they had, or in other cases, they're spreadsheets with this data that I'm talking about with the forensics, or there's video um, that we pulled from um, uh, local bars, ATMs, um, restaurants, uh, pharmacies, Like everything is depth is, um, that- that was used in the trial um are listed in the the list of exhibits. So um, you know, you're welcome to look on there. Anybody's welcome to look. Uh it's publicly available so people could see um some of those and uh and see some of the activity or see see the exhibits
0: for themselves. Oh yeah, I see like so what's what's cool for me is, you know, I have no sense of how long a trial takes. You know, like I, I only know like day's trial took forever. So I just assume everyone's. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, not like that. Yeah. So, I mean, this one I, obviously it has to span across, you know, sometimes there's continuances or, or holidays and you know, you're not working on weekends, that kind of thing, but you know, this trial was only 19 days. That's it. Yeah. The trial itself
1: was relatively quick. Um. The, uh, the, the preparation was a year and a half to two years. So, um, you know, both the defense and the prosecution, it took, you know, a year and a half to get to that trial date. Um, and that's, that's doing the forensic work. It's doing the, Mm -hmm. correlating all the witness interviews, correlating all the, 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 evidence, um, and the data. So, you know, the trial's quick, um, the getting to the trial takes a really long time and a lot of painstaking work by teams and teams of people. I mean, we had, you know, the defense team had, a, a, you know, I think at least four or five attorneys there, um, you know, working full time on this. We had a team of about, um, 15 to 20, uh, investigators, um, of which I was a part working on this. So, um, you know, and that was full time. It wasn't just, you know, we had, we had hundreds of other people helping with, um, you know, putting together stuff that we needed. So. Um, it was a really good team effort and, um, it took a long time, but, you know, luckily we were able to, uh, to show the jury, um, how he, you know, self-radicalized and, uh, was completely complicit in this, um, in this attack.
0: And, and I've got one final statement. Um, I, I, I clicked that link and it's going to be in the description or the show notes for you guys. Um, and I went to, it's a BMP exhibit 1459 from day six and I clicked on it and I've got gigabit internet and this is loading about as fast as porn on dial up (laughs) it's (laughs) it's me going to the AOL days. (laughs) <laughs> all right, John. Thank you so much for the conversation, man. Um, this has been eye-opening, uh, and I I would love to have you back on. Maybe we can talk more about cybersecurity type stuff. Sure. And uh, what MSPs should be doing for all of their clients and even themselves. What That'd do you awesome.
1: think? All right, that sounds great. Yeah, happy
2: to come back. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Steve. My pleasure. You have going, man. Thanks you too. Hey, bye.